Do you suspect or even know if your teenager is using drugs? Do you struggle with figuring out what to do next? Do you feel overwhelmed, scared, or angry? Well, you are not alone. This is the Teen Drug Abuse Podcast, where we explore all the signs of teen drug abuse, reveal science-based impact, and share potential solutions that might just be the next thing you need to try. Here's your host, Ziv Raviv. Hello and welcome to Teen Drug Abuse Podcast. Today with me, I have Casey Ariaga. Casey is a clinical social worker and an addiction counselor. He's also a podcaster at Addiction and the Family, a podcast that helps families recover together. And he is also, as a clinical social worker, works in the Windmill Wellness Ranch all the way in Texas. Hello, Casey. How are you? Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for having me aboard. I'm very glad to be here today. And yes, one of my passions is working with families and helping people understand what they can and can't do, including how to talk to their loved ones who might struggle around addictions of any kind. So a lot of times uh, talking with people that have addictions as family members, as parents, it's something that can become especially hard when, when we're talking about teens that have their own, like, psychological forces that are working within and with and even outside social forces. What are some of the tips you might give a parent about if they want to talk about drugs and they want to address what they suspect is an addiction, what would you say are some tips of what they can and can't talk about? One thing that I would always say is a couple of guidelines for any family members to understand first and foremost, your best bet is to be as open and honest as you can. A lot of times people will think, okay, how do I find the right words to get my loved one well or to get them to tell me the truth? And that leads to the second thing, which is to understand that we really don't have much control over other people. Now, a lot of parents of teenagers know this already, right? We could look and say, well, I can't make him do anything. I can't make her do anything. I can't make them tell me the truth. That can turn into either a power struggle or simply an understanding. That same phrase, I can't make them, could be incredibly frustrating or heartbreaking. Or if I can come to accept it, just realize this is reality. I can't make them do anything. Then it can actually allow a little bit of peace in the relationship to take a step back and say, okay, if I can't make someone do something, then I don't have to think what are the perfect words to use or the words to avoid, but instead to think, how can I be as open and honest as I can? So that means that if I'm going to have a conversation, say with my teenager, let's say I want to help them avoid a certain drug. It could be tempting to talk about how terrible the drug is, how awful it is, all those sorts of things. And we can bring up here are the consequences of using it. But I can also say, like, look, I understand this stuff can feel great at first or it can provide a sense of relief. But here's the consequences to that. Here's where it leads. This is the trouble that it tends to lead to. Rather than saying, uh, if you smoke the demon weed, you're going to turn into a werewolf and run off a bridge and all this kind of stuff that, that I was told as a kid. Well, most parents can say, my teenager may not understand what it means to be 30 or 40 years old, but as a 30 or 40 year old, I can remember what it was like to be a teenager. And if someone tells me, for instance, the first time you smoke pot or drink alcohol or anything like that, you're going to go crazy. And then someone tries it and they don't go crazy. Then they think, ah, it's one more thing that my parents lied to me about. So instead of lying to the kids, I would say, tell a complete picture to be able to say, hey, you know what? If it's true, I've tried some of these things. They did feel good at first. The good was very tempting. 
after a while, the good doesn't feel so good. And then eventually it can become a terrible problem and tons of regret. Why did I ever do that? All that kind of thing. And just be able to speak realistically about it. We can also speak realistically about our feelings. Again, it's tempting to filter and say, oh, I don't want to upset them. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Well, instead we can, I'm going to advocate for speaking from our hearts to be able to say, I'm really scared when I see this happen rather than you can't do this. Now you can say, hey, look, you're living under my house. This is my roof. These are my rules. These are things we understand. And then we can talk about how to set healthy boundaries. But again, even with that, to speak realistically, my boundaries aren't going to make other people do things or not do things. My boundaries are going to express my limits and not so much tell other people what they can and can't do, but instead talk about what I am going to do. Hey, if you do this, these are the consequences rather than you can't do that. Does that make sense? It does. So basically you're saying that because we, there are things out there that we cannot control, like there's things that other people, our loved ones can do that we just cannot deny them. We cannot stop them physically in doing, and we don't have real control over what they say and what they do in certain situation. Then it's better to have a conversation that is more of a, like a heart to heart conversation, but how does it make you feel and what are some of the consequences? So speaking of consequences, I want to know what is your opinion in a situation where we as parents, we often feel like there should be a consequence to the behavior of the kid, of the teen, and that the consequence can be something that we impose. What's your point of view on consequences and, and when is it a way to, to uphold the boundary and when, where is it not efficient? Well, I'm going to say that the best way to set boundaries are to say, based on my safety and my values. And as a parent, when I say safety, I have to include the safety of the household. So for instance, if there are younger kids or other people who are vulnerable within the household, then as a parent, part of my job is to look out for their safety as well. So my boundaries should be around that. Where am I protecting the safety of the household, including the teens? And where are my personal values? And so I can set boundaries around that. But when I set boundaries, again, it's not saying you can or can't. It's saying, if you do, then I will do this. And that doesn't even have to be phrased in a negative way. I can say, hey, I'd be happy to have a more open and peaceful relationship with you and even allow you more freedoms if you are staying away from some of these substances or behaviors. So I could say to my kid, and I did, I have a daughter who's 26, so kind of shepherding her through those teenage years, knowing she's likely to experiment with things, all that. I would say, hey, this kind of thing is not acceptable in the house. I know you may experiment with some things. I don't approve of that. But I would prefer that you speak openly with Matt. If I find that you're being dishonest about it, then I'm likely to take away freedoms. I'm likely to be more restrictive because I'm going to get more scared. I want to see you be safe. This is part of my job. So in there, I'm saying like, if you're open and honest with me, then there's the if then, then I'll probably be less restrictive. If I find you're being dishonest with me, then I'm probably going to clamp down more. Now notice I'm not, I'm setting the boundaries as realistically as I can. Here's what I'm likely to do in reaction rather than saying, I'm going to come up with something so big that I'm going to scare you into submission. And that's like a classic blunder that I think a lot of people get into. And this is how we get into power struggles, especially with teenagers, because teenagers, when we go through that phase of life, a couple of things to remember from our own teenage years, we're willing to take a lot more risk. And this partly has to do with brain development. Our frontal lobes, where we make executive decisions, I'm sure many of the listeners may be aware, but just in case, those shrink back during our teenage years. We're supposed to take more risk. We're supposed to 
take more chances, try new things, all that kind of stuff. So for a teenager, like if I say as an adult, man, that seems like a really risky proposition. A lot of teenagers look at it and say like, it's probably worth the risk. Let's see what happens. So just talking about risk, probably, I mean, I think it's important to do, but to recognize that may not sway someone at 15 as much as it would when they were 10 or as much as it will when they're 25. When and we also have to remember adolescence for brain development doesn't actually end until we're between 24 and 26 years old. So this is a long phase where people are willing to take more risk, are less likely to listen to adults, all that kind of stuff. And this is part of normal development. And we're kind of supposed to step on our toes and get our nerves on each other's nerves a little bit. Otherwise, no one would ever leave the home. So recognizing some of those things and setting boundaries to say, okay, am I trying to scare somebody into submission and following my rules? Am I getting into a power struggle or am I opening up dialogue? Because part of my job as a parent is also to shepherd these kids into young adults, not to just get them to obey me all the time. I want to talk to you about teens that actually went through rehab mm-hmm. and, and the, like, the way that they go back to their family, to their communities, to their like, new old life. What are some of the things that you think you could advise on helping people with this transition so that they, the rehab would actually be like, will, would last longer? Well, probably the biggest thing is to have some realistic expectations. Realistically, teenagers who go through treatment, it's a relatively small number who stay sober for life from there. However, what we know about treatment is that things tend to get better. So for instance, people that go through treatment tend to have less trouble later, not necessarily no trouble later. They tend to probably the biggest thing is that they become more and more open to accepting help if they need it. So again, having that open dialogue to say, hey, you don't have to pretend like you're doing better than you are. And I'm going to try not to pretend like I'm doing better than I am. Let's just be open and honest about the fact that this may be a difficult transition home. You this new dynamic. And the easiest thing when we get into our old familiar environment is to fall into our old familiar patterns. That doesn't necessarily mean drug use, although that can happen, but our old communication patterns. So for instance, let's say I send my child away. They're gone for maybe the stereotype is three to four weeks. They go and they do treatment. I'm not there watching over the shoulder to see all the treatment. I may get some reports, depending on the treatment center. I may not even learn that much about what really happened there. My kid comes home. I'm going to be really tempted to treat them the way I did before. Or, and this is not much better, walk on eggshells, be super careful, don't want to upset the apple cart. All of those things get in the way of communication. So I'm going to say again, I'm going to keep coming back to this theme that I do with any family of sitting down and saying, let's be honest with each other. Hey, I'm, I'm, happy to have you home. I'm also scared to have you home. I have my own nervousness in here. I may overreact sometimes. If I do, I'm going to try and catch myself and say, hey, wait, sorry, I'm treating you like I did four weeks ago when everything was falling apart. Let me try that again. I say to family members, I give you the magic power, stop yourself mid-sentence. Have that humility to say, I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing either. Now, that being said, if the treatment center, for instance, has a family program, if they have opportunities to do family counseling. I know some families will say, hey, send the kid away. You're going to go get fixed and come back. That's not really how it works. Nobody's getting fixed. So to have, again, the humility as the designated adult in the situation to say, hey, I'm going to try and learn and grow through this too. 
I'm going to try and pick up some tips. I'm going to work on my communication. That kind of thing can go miles towards opening up that honesty and you guys being able to talk to each other, which is probably going to be the most important thing going forward. Because the biggest thing I run into that family members rightly complain about that goes around drug abuse and addiction is the dishonesty that goes with it. I've had many family members say, look, I could even handle what's happening if you would just tell me the truth, which is often the last thing teenagers want to do. So being able to open up and say, okay, I'm going to be open and truthful. I'm going to ask the same knowing there's no guarantee, but at least we're opening that up. And also taking these opportunities to engage in family resources. Like for instance, there's a lot of family recovery fellowships out there. The two biggest are a 12-step group called Al-Anon. And then the other one is a little bit smaller, but takes a little bit of a different approach called Smart Recovery Family and Friends. They all have online meetings, phone meetings, international meetings, lots of books and literature. There's a lot of things that a family member can learn rather than saying, you're the problem, go get fixed. I've never met a family once where if the one person did better, the whole family has no problems. In fact, sometimes they can expose that there's things going on in the rest of the family that nobody wants to talk about. We're all focusing on this one person and recognizing sometimes teenagers are turn to these things, reacting to emotional forces that either we don't know or that may be going on in the family that nobody wants to look at. So being able to have that humility demonstrates for them also and models for them, oh, okay, hey, if my family is willing to change and grow, if they're not just pointing the finger at me, then maybe it's easier to talk. What uh, would you say to a parent that calls you and consults with you about whether they should send their team to... A facility like a rehab center like Windmill Wellness Ranch. And when is it like that the parent knows that he's like qualified, but that it's actually severe enough that they should consider a solution? Or maybe there's another way of you to qualify them that is not about severity, but please uh, like uh, let me know. What would you recommend? What I would say is to talk with the admission staff at the treatment center. Now, coming from a little bit of an American point of view and sort of saying legally what or ethically what happens, you know, in our context, I, don't, I doubt it's that different anywhere you go. For somebody to go to a treatment center, there's sort of minimum criteria that need to be hit. For instance, if someone calls up and says, oh my God, I found some pot in my daughter's room and I know she must be addicted and all this kind of stuff. They're going to ask a series of questions to find out how bad is it really? And legally and ethically for somebody to be in a treatment center, at least like the kind of place where I'm working, there are certain benchmarks that need to be hit to say like, is the problem bad enough? If it's not, then we actually recommend other resources like maybe an outpatient program where somebody is doing it from home or going somewhere three days a week, that sort of thing. So there's some professional guidance that can be had around that. But all that guidance is going to come down to how much disruption and problem is this causing in somebody's life? For instance, is it interfering with school? Is it causing significant conflict within the family? Are there any physical signs of withdrawal? For instance, if somebody is drinking a lot, they're running into a lot of trouble and you can tell, starting to have more and more of a physical impact on it. They're having trouble getting up in the morning, things like that. They're not sleeping at night. That one's a little tricky because our teenage brains are actually set up. So we're supposed to stay up later at night and wake up later in the morning. But we know that our social schedules and our society often doesn't support that for teenagers. So they're kind of like, hey, it's early morning, get up, all that kind of stuff. There's not a black and white, hey, if this is happening, then you must. I will say if, if you're finding somebody, for instance, say their first time drinking alcohol, they drink to the point of blackout. That's probably a pretty bad sign because some people are simply more vulnerable to addiction than other. And that's partly genetic. So you could look at your own family history and the family tree. 
And then it's partly, of course, social and environmental impacts. And recognizing that for teenagers, probably they're one of their greatest, and it's supposed to be, one of their greatest influences is going to be social and peer groups. That doesn't mean that, that the other kids are causing the problem. After all, your teenager went and sought those people out. And frankly, some other parent is probably thinking your teenager is the problem. So it's not just like, oh, if I could get them away from those nasty friends. But being able to recognize how much of an impact is this having? Are they gravitating strictly towards other people who are doing similar things? At, that, at some of those points, you might say, okay, maybe it's time for me to step in as a parent and intervene. It's not just a conversation anymore. It's more like, okay, what do we do to get this, this person to treatment and get them some help? But again, thinking in terms of I'm getting them some help rather than I'm getting them fixed so that we can all go on like nothing happened. A lot of, of the teens these days are exposed to weed. First of all, there's like many countries where weed is, is legalized and even for recreational use. And that seems to be maybe unfair that uh, their parents can legally buy and consume weed and they can't. And also like in, in just in society, in, 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 on Netflix, on, on the TV, on movies, you could say you can see weed being consumed everywhere and being accepted by society. Do you still see weed as a, a risk factor and like how severe do you see it when it comes to teens? that are using it? Well, I'd say where the risk probably is most with that particular drug is that a lot of teenagers don't think it's a drug. In the same way that a lot of people and everything you just said applies equally to alcohol. Commonly accepted, used by adults, been legal for all of our lifetimes, at least in most places. Some countries it's illegal. The United States tried that for a while, failed miserably. So it's been legal ever since. So I'm going to say I'm not in the war on drugs. I'm in the war on addiction. So there's a lot of things. So alcohol, you can easily become addicted to it, but some people use it socially for their entire lives. I don't have really a strong opinion. Should it be legal or not? One of the things about legalization, though, certainly within the United States, is that as it's becoming sort of gradually piecemeal legalized, and that has to do with lots of other factors, you're finding that that opens the door for people to be breeding more and more potent, like more and more THC in the weed. But the thing, biggest thing that I see with teenagers is A, they don't think it's a drug and B, it is more and more available through vape pens now. So teenagers, as they think, hey, the vape pen's cool, may be hitting THC and not even realize it. They think it's just a nicotine one. But even nicotine itself, another very commonly accepted drug, biggest killer drug in the world and four times more than alcohol. Nonetheless, people just look at it and go like, oh, that's not really a drug. And that's not even the most abused drug on earth. By far, the most abused drug on earth is caffeine, but we officially can't be addicted to caffeine because it doesn't cause enough problems in somebody's life. So the thing about weed, you know, that's the risk factor sort of from the teenage point of view, but it's to recognize that increasingly, especially as the THC levels in it go up, is risks for mental health. So for instance, people who might've been vulnerable to schizophrenia, but weren't going to tip all the way over there. And as some people may know, late teens is actually when those symptoms are likely to first hit for somebody. Well, there's more and more research suggesting that THC use can tip someone over the edge. So maybe they would just be a little funky before, but now they have a serious mental health issue going on that they otherwise might not have been having or that we may have exacerbated with weed use. So it's certainly not a harmless drug. As some people like to say, it certainly is a drug. There's no scientific definition for drug that wouldn't include THC or alcohol or caffeine or nicotine or any of those things. It's just that socially, we don't think of them as being much of a problem. You wrote a book called Realistic Hope. Uh, tell us a little bit about that because we, we could all use some hope. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Well, thank you. One of the reasons that I picked that title is to say that we all do need hope, but around things like addiction, it does need to be realistic rather than saying, I I fail. I I probably could have sold more books by saying, hey, there's hope for everybody and it's always going to turn out great. But I didn't want to do that. In working with families, I found that that finding realism, getting an idea of what you can realistically expect is huge. So that's the thrust of the book. But it's meant to be a book for family members, although many people in addiction recovery themselves have read it and said it's helpful. The main thrust was to say for a family member, what can you do? How can you communicate more effectively? If I'm telling someone I love, hey, you need to go to recovery meetings, or if I decide to go to a family recovery meeting, what can I expect? What happens in treatment? What happens after treatment? What different levels of care mean? But a lot of it is around just understanding what's happening in somebody's brain around addiction. How do we get into these problems? What's, what are, what's not happening? So a lot of family members, consciously or not, will start to blame themselves and looking to say, how do I step back from that? But how do we move into solution and even learn to be happy with our lo- loved one is doing the way we wish or they weren't, which I think could be good for anyone because you when know, you talk about teenagers, almost no teenager does exactly what their parents want. And if it looks that way, they're probably fooling you. So when I look at that and say like, okay, how can I learn to be happy and take a step back and recognize I can be happy if they struggle. I can be happy if they don't struggle. That may sound like, oh, I don't love them or I don't care, but it actually means that I'm taking that weight off their shoulders because most people who struggle with these issues recognize the families doing badly if they're doing badly. And then actually the person with the addiction, even though they may pretend that they aren't, often feels guilty and even shameful about, oh, what am I doing to my family? My mom or dad gets really upset if these things happen. Well, if mom or dad can say, you know what? I love you. I'll support you. I'm going to try and help you stay sober and do the right thing, but I'm going to be okay even if you struggle. That actually lets the person just focus on their own struggle rather than getting too caught up in, I need to make the whole family okay by pretending to do better than I really am. So the book is just meant as an all-inclusive resource for people to have a better understanding of how they can help, what they can do, what they can't do and how they can help the rest of the family as well, even if one person is struggling. Where can people find Realistic Hope? Oh, the good old sources like Amazon and (laughs) Barnes & Noble, things like that. It's available both paperback and also as an electronic book. Thank you. And tell us a little bit more about uh, your podcast, Addiction and the Family. So it's funny because when I started writing Realistic Hope, I thought, how am I going to publicize this? So, (laughs) So I started up a podcast about two years earlier. And the, uh, the podcast, Addiction and the Family, is carrying a lot of the same message, but then I gave me an opportunity to do like we're doing here, to interview different people, other people who had written their own books, or sometimes just people in recovery, interview a lot of family members, being able to interview, for instance, uh, our last episode had brother and sister who had both found their own recovery in different ways, one of them from addiction, and the other one started into family recovery as a family member going to meetings for family members and by family members and then found that they actually had some of, you know, she had some of her own issues around addiction and compulsive behavior that she hadn't recognized. So it became a gift for everybody that 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 happened. And then some of the episodes, I'm just talking informationally, like the next episode coming up is talking about how to help relationships survive early recovery, which is usually that first year or so of the recovery process and how to help relationships get through that, what can be kind of a rough time, even though everyone thinks, oh, hey, problem solved. The reality is there's probably still going to be some struggle, not just with the chemicals, but with communication and things like that and how to move through those things. Casey Ariaga, this has been really an important conversation. We touched a lot of topics. Uh, Is there anything else uh, where people can go and learn more about what you do? 
Well, I appreciate you asking. Yes, my the easiest thing, if you go to caseyauthor.com, like an author of books. So caseyauthor.com is kind of a one-stop where I have videos, links to the books, podcasts, all kinds of stuff like that. And I'm on TikTok and all the social media things. And if anyone wants to email, they can email me at addictionandthefamily at gmail.com. And we'll put all the links to all of these resources in the show notes at teamdragabuse.co. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Casey. And uh, see you guys next week. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Teen Drug Abuse Podcast. To get additional resources and support, go to teendrugabuse.co.